Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks, Ken. It was fun. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open to Matthew chapter 16. And we'll try and do this as quick as we can this morning, but it'll tie in well. I don't think we'll feel like we're lost. Um, it's a very uh, interesting passage of Scripture. Many that uh, theologians, guys much smarter than me, would say this is the dead center of Matthew's um, gospel. Uh, chap- or, uh, yes, chapter 16. And perhaps a paragraph in here narrows it down even closer and maybe one sentence puts it right at the, uh, uh, the center of his message. <clears throat> the idea here is that in these uh, first 15 chapters, you've got Jesus ministering in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. It's a very intimate ministry. It's with his disciples. Certainly lots of miracles have occurred and some significant teaching. But now, in chapter 16, he uh, has made his way up to Caesarea Philippi, which is at the northern end of Israel. It's about 25 miles north of Galilee. Now, I've had the privilege of being in Israel a few times and uh, been to this actual city or this location. The headwaters of the Jordan River are there. Crystal clear and beautiful. It's very spring-like um, in, in its setting. It's a, a beautiful spot. Um, this particular center has always been viewed um, throughout history as a center of worship. So I'm going to ask the guys to throw a slide up on the screen. It's an artist's rendering. They've got it of, um, of a rock escapement there or escarpment in, in Caesarea Philippi. So I've been down... You can't see the river, but it's right below this picture. I've been down on the river and looking at this rock. Now, this is an artist rendering, but in its day, it was a place where uh, worship occurred a lot. First, by the Assyrians. They'd worship Baal here. And then, of course, uh, when um, the Greco-Roman period came into play, uh, they also erected idols to Pan, the Greek god. And then eventually, as you can hear in its name, Uh, Caesarea Philippi, was in honor of Caesar. And so Caesar was even worshipped there. One of Herod's sons uh, was given this city, and he wanted to honor the Caesar, and so that's what he named it after the Caesar and himself. And um, there was a time when all three of those gods could be worshipped there. It's it's in this particular place that Jesus, that we find Jesus in chapter 16. So let me read this to you, beginning of verse 13. So here's the setting. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, it's really uh, fascinating to look at. Jesus very seldom, you'll find in Matthew's Gospel, very seldom asks a question of his disciples. And this is the first time that he asks a question about himself. It's very deflecting up to this point, but he actually asks a question about himself here. Who do people say that I am? Well, it's interesting that he would do that here in this location. You should flip to the next slide. Um, there's a picture of these idols, uh, little carvings into the rock that you could stick the idol in. So as you walk up to this wall, there's all kinds of these. It's crazy. And then flip to the last shot, and we'll leave that one up there. This is the actual picture of the rock, the biggest portion of the rock, um, if you got it that uh, shows us this big rock. And if Jesus is down at the bottom on the river, and 
this is the backdrop, you can see that it's a pregnant moment because represented behind him would be the then-known world religions, the worldviews, if you will. And he's throwing down hard with his disciples. That's the backdrop. And he's asking the question, who do the people think I am? So if that's in your mind, let's keep going here. Verse 14, and they said, uh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. That's all great company, but he's still driving hard. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So now the question shifts to his own disciples. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is what's known as the Great Confession. And today, this morning, I just want to look at the Confession, the Great Confession and the Great Commission. And we'll do this fast. This confession that Peter gives, Jesus then sets its theological foundation in correctness. This is what he says. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon of Jonah recognizing his earthly father. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Really crucial, but here's a theological underpinning. Salvation comes from God and God alone. God is the one who calls and draws us and gives us the ability to believe, and there's no more profound statement in Scripture that verifies that than this right here. Jesus is giving the gospel to Peter very succinctly and saying, you didn't earn this, Peter. You didn't think well. You weren't really sincere. That's not what got you this. Salvation comes from my Father, and he revealed it to you. And then he goes on to to honor Peter, seemingly. He says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. That's really as far as I want to go this morning in that passage. But the idea here is that it seems like Jesus is honoring Peter. There's been a big debate within the world of uh, uh, theology from all different uh, disciplines Protestant, Roman Catholic, as to what's the true meaning of this. Some would say, well, this is obvious that Jesus is now going to start his church right here, and he's going to start it on Peter. And Peter, Petra, means rock, and so this is the beginning of the church. And the Roman Catholic Church has taken that to mean it started with Peter, and then it has followed in succession all the way through today with a pope and God building his church and the pope being at the center of that. Protestant theology would say it isn't Peter the man that, that uh, is being identified here so much as it's Peter pointing to Christ. Pointing to Christ, and that's the rock that Jesus is building his church on. Now, I think it's both. I'm not saying that Peter has set up, or that God's using Peter. It's not going to be too much longer, and you're going to hear Jesus call Peter Satan. Okay? So it makes it a little bit difficult to think, well, it's Peter because he's got this special knowledge or he's super holy or whatever that God's going, he's the guy. I really don't think that's it. He's, he's got some issues coming. However, I do think it's honoring of Peter at this point because Peter's the one that's doing the talking. 
And it's representing all of the disciples. So it's very personal, but it's also Peter pointing at this. Christ pointing is called Christocentricity. That's a big theological term. And it's this gift of this activity, above all else, that builds the church. Disciples and communities who modestly, tirelessly, and faithfully point to Jesus are disciples and communities that Jesus honors by building up the church. So we understand from this particular passage that Jesus declares, I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail. In Jewish history and culture, Hades, maybe that's how it's translated in your Bible, Hades was literally the place of death. And Jesus is making a correlation here and saying, death, I know, is the last enemy, but I'm going to put death in his grave. My church will not succumb to death. Nothing is going to prevail. And assuredly, not the last enemy is going to prevail against my church. This is decided. That is the great confession, if you will. It's establishing the theology of the church. What do we know? Salvation comes from God and God alone. Christ is by himself going to establish and build his church. And nothing's going to stop it. That's what we get out of that passage, briefly. Can you just own that for a second? Okay, now flip with me to the end of Matthew, where we get our walking papers from Jesus. I don't know how many times this passage has been preached, We'll give it one more shot here. Here is the Great Commission. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's brilliant. If I'm writing the Bible, I think I told you this before, I would edit that out. That's not good, is it? Some doubted. It doesn't really affect Jesus too much. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Authority. All authority has been given to me. Matthew uses the word authority more than any other of the gospel writers, and he uses it as his favorite descriptor of Jesus. It means executive power Um, in our vernacular. This is the CEO of the universe. He's got complete control. All spiritual, all metaphysical, philosophical, and religious power in heaven belongs to Jesus. But also all social, physical, political, and economic power on earth are in his hands. There isn't anywhere that you can go in the universe, not one single event that he isn't in full control of. He controls it all. So what does that mean for us? It means that we need not fear anything or anyone. 
No spiritual power to be feared. No man to be feared. He has everything in his hand. In reality, the powers here on earth seem to be very strong, and certainly as we would look at it in our own lives and read it in the newspapers, we think, oh my gosh, these powers are so big. But Jesus, in this passage, is saying, all authority has been given to me, and uh, no, nobody is stronger than I am. So, in light of that, I want you, as my people, to move out. It's decided. I'm going to build my church. Nothing is going to stop it, and I don't even need you. It's going to happen with or without you. I don't need you. But since I love you, and since you will recognize me as followers of me to have all authority, I need you to move out. I need you to go to all the nations. Get moving. The only verb in this passage is make disciples. Um, the others are attendant to it. They're participles to that and kind of describe what it means to make disciples. So there's much to be about in Jesus' world as it refers to making disciples. We're going to baptize them and we're going to teach them to obey all that have been commanded by him. However, the key lower profile verb Lower than make converts, win them to my cause, convert them. Jesus never asks us to do that. Why? Because he does it. He does it. That's exactly right. We don't do that. And sometimes we get hung up with evangelism and our, uh, and our methods and thinking we're actually a part of the conversion process. We're not. That's something his father does. You can't know Jesus unless his father grants that. So what are we supposed to be about? It's a lower profile verb. It's slower and lower. It's almost scholastic, a schoolish kind of word. Make disciples. Make students. Bring to school. Educate. Mentor or apprentice. Dare I say it's just like the group that was up here. This is what we're to do. We're to make disciples. Jesus will do all the big things. He'll convert, he'll win, he'll bring repentance, he'll bring a person to decision. All authority is his and his alone. That's for him to do. What are we to do? Disciple. We'll do the little things of discipling others, and Jesus will do the big things. So, all nations. Nowhere are we uh, given a, an area that we're not supposed to go. This is a world vision. It creates longings to see a universal spread of the mission. What does this feel like? This feels like you and I can say, the world is my home. I fear nothing. It's just where I live. It's just where I take up residence. And it doesn't matter where I go. I feel at home here. And then lastly, Jesus says, so get moving, go do this. And uh, oh, by the way, this one who has authority, this one who has all the power, I am going with you. I will always be with you. Not future, but right now and future. I am with you. Do you remember back to Moses when, when he uh, encounters God at the burning bush, you know, and this is a big holy moment, and Moses is kind of freaking out, and God says, I want you to go get my people, 
in Egypt. And, and uh, Moses says, here I am, Lord. Send Aaron. Okay? Because, man, I can't speak. And I don't know why, who am I supposed to tell him sent me. And all these things kind of back it up. And what does God say? You little worm, just get a spine. Stand up. No, he says, I'm going to go with you. This is what God always does with his people. So what does this mean for you and I? The Christ who rules earth and heaven said, I will build my church. So here's my questions for you this morning. Do you hear God's call on your life? Individually and corporately. You, the person sitting here, and Antioch as the community of faith in Bend. Do you hear God's call in your life? Do you want to pursue something that's absolutely certain? Okay, stop and think about that for a second. Is there anything in your world currently that you can say, I'm pursuing this because I'm absolutely certain of the outcome? Parenting, school, job, vocation, athletics, training, Anything that you can declare, I will pursue this because I'm absolutely certain of this outcome. Dare I say there's not one thing in the world that you can pursue except for this. This idea that Jesus' church will not be stopped. Do you want to give yourself to something that's invincible? Because that's what we're talking about. And in the end, nothing done for Christ is done in vain. It starts with a theological foundation, an understanding of who Jesus is and what your salvation is, and an understanding that he will do this with or without us, and then receiving his call to go. Go make disciples of all the nations. Whether that be making sure that there's a church that will will look at the next generation and say, we have an, an, a responsibility to disciple, so we're going to bring interns from around the nation. I know it's a hassle. They're going to eat all your food and sleep in your spare bed and come in late at night and be loud. Were you guys going to do that? You probably will. I understand that. It's okay, though. That investment is huge. Where will they go? Some end up here at Antioch, but not many. They'll go around the world. What about just planting churches? Maybe you have the next planter in your midst right now that needs to be identified, raised up. Maybe some of you need to go. I think I told this story the last time, and I'll just kind of end with this, but Kyle Costello was on staff in Imago Day, and we thought he was going to plant in Portland. And it just so happens that God says, no, you're going to go to Salt Lake City. Missio Day is the little church that's being planted out there. Now, Kyle is a seventh-generation Mormon, so it makes some sense. Send him out there. He knows the language. Okay? When Kyle came to me, he said, so, Luke, how, how's this going to work? And I said, well, we're going to support you financially and all that, but here's what you have. You have free reign, Kyle. You can go to anybody in the whole of the congregation, staff, elders, deacons, I don't care. Anybody that you can win to your vision, you can take with you. Now, of course, what was I thinking? Anybody really want to go to Salt Lake? I mean, seriously. Kyle took two staff people, an elder and the chief deacon, and 40 people. And the people that left didn't have jobs when they left. Families 
Lead Deacon, no job. Jeremy Cox, he's my hero. I'll find one, Luke. I'm going with Kyle. Yeah, you're going to bleed. I understand that. But God will have his way. This is an absolutely certain, invincible plan. And he will do it through his local church. The question for us, interns, the rest of us, Ken, is simply are we going to listen to that call? And are we going to step forward in certainty and say, yeah, God, I'm with you. I'm thrown in with you. Jesus sets himself up in front of that big rock and says, all of the world's religions are there. And I'm saying, it's me. I'm the one you follow. And it will look countercultural. But just a little word to you, I'll whisper it to you. I have all authority. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this group of people. I thank you for Ken's leadership and not to take away any leadership from elders and deacons and others, faithful teachers, but I do thank you for Ken and his willingness to be obedient, to stay true to what you've called him to. May that be infectious. May we all see that as a good thing and a certain thing, that what we do here is not done in vain. I thank you for Antioch and its testimony. May you keep them humble before you constantly. May you honor their endeavors to exalt your Christ. I pray this for his glory and his glory alone. Amen.